So I was saying to JD, this didn't seem like a very difficult lesson when I got this assignment. You know, it's just a little bit of information about the person of the Holy Spirit, but as, as always, I learned a tremendous amount about the person of the Holy Spirit, so I'm always excited to share what I learned, so uh, I, I hope you'll, you'll pick up a few things today as well. Uh, before we dive in uh, without slides, uh, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer that this lesson will be um, useful to us and that he'll bless it. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you. Thank you for an opportunity to study doctrine. Lord, thank you for believers who want badly to know more about you, that are willing to come and put in extra time and effort to study doctrine, to, to understand you more fully, Lord. I ask that you would bless this lesson uh, through the hearing of your word and uh, that you would um, glorify yourself, that we would understand your third person, your spirit, more fully and completely, that you might be worshipped more rightly um, by all of us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. All right, so here, here's the question. Would you say you're as well-versed in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as you are on the doctrine of God the Father or God the Son? If I were to answer that question, I, would, okay, I see some heads nodding no. I certainly would say I'm not. Um, you know, to be honest, there's probably a little bit of confusion about the Holy Spirit. It's, it's probably a topic that doesn't get as much attention as God the Father, God the Son. Um, for example, the topic today, is he really a person or is he an impersonal force or a thing? That's what we're going to set about trying to answer today. I thought I would start by giving you what we say on the Redemption Hill website, on our doctrinal statement. You can find this on, on uh, the Redemption Hill website under God the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to read the whole doctrinal statement, but just the first sentence. We believe the Holy Spirit is the eternal third person in the Godhead who is equal to and one with the Father and the Son. We believe the Holy Spirit is the eternal third person in the Godhead who is equal to and one with the Father and the Son. And there's a lot more to our statement of faith on the website uh, but we'll stop there for now, and maybe Carrie and Stephen, one or both of them, will cover the rest of it. Hopefully, what you'll see this morning, or hear this morning, rather, is that the Holy Spirit is indeed a person from the evidence that we see in Scripture, that he's a personal being, not an impersonal force or a thing. As per usual, my primary source for the lesson is Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, um, I'm basically regurgitating what they teach, and then I have some excerpts from Wayne Grudem and his book, Bible Doctrine. Here's my outline for today, if you're taking notes, five points. The first thing I'm going to do is um, an Old Testament survey of the term spirit. Then we'll do a New, Test New Testament survey of the term spirit. Then we're going to look at the scriptural evidence for personhood, which is kind of interesting. Um, I learned a lot there. Number four, so Old Testament survey of the term, New Testament survey, scriptural evidence for personhood. Number four, names and titles for the Holy Spirit. And then we'll end up with, number five, word pictures of the Holy Spirit. And I had some really good graphics, but you'll have to use your imaginations on this. So let's start with section one, Old Testament survey of the term spirit. The original Hebrew word is ruach. R-U-A-K-H, Ruach. 
appears 378 times in the Old Testament. There's an identical word, the Aramaic ruach, spelled the same, but it's found only 11 times in the book of Daniel. Primarily, what ruach means is spirit or wind or breath. So it's not always referring specifically to uh, the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. Context almost always determines the meaning. For example, if you look at uh, Genesis 6-3, God is speaking and he talks about my spirit. Obviously, when God is speaking, it's his Holy Spirit. Um, The book of Job, Job in um, chapter 10, verse 12, he references his spirit. So obviously, when a man is talking about his spirit, it's not the spirit of God. So we can distinguish based on uh, the use of the word ruach from the context of which spirit it's talking about. Proverbs 16, 18 is another time where spirit is used, but it's talking about an attitude of haughtiness, a spirit of, of sin. So obviously that's not the Holy Spirit. And then the psalmist in, like, for example, 31, 5, Psalm 31, 5, is also referring to what we would call the immaterial part of man, man's spirit. Again, distinct from the use of ruach, which refers to the Holy Spirit. And we'll see some references to the names and other references that'll help us distinguish this. As far as that word ruach, it appears in all but seven of the 39 Old Testament books. Um, It occurs most frequently in Isaiah. You find Isaiah mentions the Holy Spirit 15 times, Ezekiel 15 times, Numbers, Judges, and 1 Samuel 7 times, and Psalms 5 times. The point here is that the Holy Spirit is not a new manifestation of God just in the New New Testament. We see it mentioned uh, throughout the Old Testament. You won't find the word Ruach in Leviticus, Ruth, Esther, Song of Solomon, Obadiah, Nahum, or Zephaniah. And out of the 378 times that you find Ruach in the Old Testament, it only refers specifically to the Holy Spirit 21% of the time. In other words, one in five times. So again, context will help you determine. But almost half of the books, 21 of the 39 books, it is meaning the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. What's really interesting, this this made me stop and think, again, the Holy Spirit is co-eternal. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, it, this word ruach, referring to the Holy Spirit, shows up in the very beginning at the time of creation, Genesis 1-2. Listen to this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So right there in the beginning, you see the Holy Spirit mentioned. And then in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, the last book of the Old Testament, we also see the Holy Spirit mentioned. So first and last books of the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament. Point number two here, New Testament survey. This is the Greek word pneuma that's used for spirit. P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. It's where we get the term pneumatology from, in case you were wondering. 379 times in the New Testament we see this Greek word pneuma. Hey, look at this. Oh, we had it for a second. We had graphics. Bryce is not giving up. So we see, uh, go ahead and keep going forward. Yeah, we'll worry about that. Um, Almost the same number of times in the New Testament you see the word pneuma as you did in the Old Testament with the word ruach, but when it's mentioned, when pneuma is mentioned in the New Testament, two out of three times 
it is actually referring to the Holy Spirit. 25 New Testament books, it mentions this word only in uh, 2 and 3 John, you don't see that word. And in Philemon and James, you see the word pneuma, but it's not referring to the Holy Spirit. So the vast majority of the New Testament has this word pneuma. And again, kind of like in the Old Testament where we found the word in the first and last books of the Old Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and also Revelation 21, uh, 21, I believe, 21, 10, you see mention of the Holy Spirit. And not surprisingly, I had a really neat little graphic for this, bar graph, I made it myself, but the book of Acts has the Holy Spirit mentioned 56 times. So Luke really talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. You would imagine that in the book of Acts. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, also talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. In Romans, his epistle to the Romans, he wrote about the Holy Spirit 30 times. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, he talked about it 24 times. Luke, 17 times. Galatians, 16 times. Um, John, 14. Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about the Holy Spirit 14 times. And there are many other instances but no matter where you find the Holy Spirit, one of the dominant themes, when the scriptures in the New Testament talk about the Holy Spirit, one of the dominant themes is that the Holy Spirit is a gift of God to the believer. I'll read to you from Acts 2.38. This is an example. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there are other verses, but we got started late, so I'll leave some of those off. Again, whenever you see the Holy Spirit mentioned in the New Testament, uh, the vast majority of the time it's talking about the Holy Spirit as a gift from God for the believer. Let's go on to uh, number three. This is interesting, the scriptural evidence for personhood. Again, we're trying to answer the question, and I said to J.D., this is one of the things I got out of this. When I talk about the Holy Spirit, can I actually use the pronoun he? I don't think I ever really do that, but after this lesson, and you'll see why, I can say he. So, so many times in the, in the New and the Old Testament, we see references to either ruach or pneuma. So scripturally, biblically, we can say there is more than sufficient evidence for his existence. Again, 79 specific references in the Old Testament. We have 245 in the New Testament. So that's a total of 324 references specifically to the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think of God the Father, I think it's easy to think of him as a person. We know he's intimate, relational. He cares about us. We talk about Romans 1 where in the things that have been created, we know God exists through his attributes, his uh, divine power and eternal wisdom and might. So we think of him and his name, the Father, it's easy to think of him as a person. Christ, likewise, even easier. He came and was manifested as a person. So it's very easy for us to think of him as a person. But according to MacArthur and Mayhew, this, is, this was something I thought was kind of neat. Personhood isn't measured by physical elements like body parts, like blood, skin, sinew, bones. That doesn't determine personhood. Instead, there are three basic characteristics that are required for personhood. And I'm going to go through those and show you some scriptural evidence that speaks to each of those things. Um, I'm going to include a fourth one by um, uh, Wayne Grudem. 
that I think is also important. But you'll see the Bible gives us, again, more than sufficient evidence that the Holy Spirit does possess all three of these characteristics. They are, the first one is cognition or intellect. Cognition or intellect, right? The second one is volition or will. The third one would be emotion or affection. We'll go through each of these subcategories. Start with cognition and intellect. And I'll just say what the scriptures say. He counsels. He imparts wisdom. Those are both from Isaiah 11.2. It's an important verse. He counsels. He imparts wisdom. He inspired scripture. The Holy Spirit superintended the writing of scripture, inspired uh, prophets and the apostles to write what God gave them. The entire Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, going on with cognition and intellect, he intercedes. That's in Romans 8. He knows, says Isaiah 11 and 1 Corinthians 2. He possesses a mind, says Paul in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 2. Possesses a mind, that is pretty much a slam dunk for possessing intellect and cognition, I would say. He reminds us, says John in chapter 14. He provides truth, again, the book of John, numerous times and in 1 John. He speaks. You can't speak without cognition or intellect, can you? That's from Acts, many places in Acts and in the book of Revelation. He speaks. He teaches, says Luke, John, 1 Corinthians, and Hebrews. And he testifies, John, 1 John, Romans. So he does have cognition and intellect. Let's look at the second characteristic, volition or will. Genesis and Acts tell us he, the Holy Spirit, contends with sinners. Acts 16 tells us he directs. 1 Corinthians 12, Hebrews 2 say he, he distributes spiritual gifts. We know that. John and Titus both tell us the Holy Spirit regenerates. Again, indications, evidence of volition and will. Let's go to the third um, characteristic required for personhood, and that is emotion or affection. First Thessalonians tells us that he experiences joy. Have you ever thought of the Holy Spirit experiencing joy? And that's kind of a neat thing to see. Hebrews says that he can be insulted. The Holy Spirit can be insulted. Isaiah the prophet, and in the book of Ephesians, we find out that the Holy Spirit grieves over sin. If you want all these references later for notes, I'm trying to speed up and not give you every specific verse, but uh, what they say. He grieves over sin. And then finally, Romans, Galatians says the Holy Spirit loves. So again, evidence of emotion or affection. I want to bring forward one little footnote that was at the bottom of the Grudem or I'm sorry, at the bottom of uh, MacArthur and Mayhew's text that I think is important here before we leave this third point. Um, Grudem, I'm sorry, MacArthur and Mayhew say, when we use the language of emotion and affection, we don't mean to imply that God's affections or the Holy Spirit's affections are involuntary passions by which he's driven, as is the case with us as humans. Okay, very different. You have to go to the Westminster Confession, which says this. God is without body, hearts, or passions, immutable. And I had to look up the word immutable. It means perfect unchangeability. So God, we know this, he is eternally the same. He isn't driven by his emotions. 
Rather, and I thought this was a good statement, his affections are the sovereign and deliberate, deliberate expressions of his holy dispositions. So as we look at emotion and affection, keep in mind, he's not driven by them. Those are just expressions of who he is. So those are the three evidences for personhood, according to MacArthur and Mayhew. I'm going to include what Grudem said. This was, I think, good too. One additional characteristic to show that the Holy Spirit is a person is relationship, specifically a familial relationship with God the Father and God the Son. And I'm going to read through a few passages here that will show you. I picked six of them specifically that show this coordinate relationship. All three of them are mentioned kind of in concert with each other. And it's hard not to just go into uh, Trinitarian doctrine as you talk about one person of the, of the triune God. But uh, you'll see here the point. We're talking about relationship as evidence of personhood in these verses I'm going to mention. Matthew 28, 19. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. So when you see in this text, the names of the Father and the Son, they're drawn from that familiar institution we know as the family. So it's easy to see very strongly the personhood of both the Father and the Son, like we talked about. But in Matthew 28, 19, when the Holy Spirit is put in the same expression, on the same level, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this is a family relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, same level, family relationship. Um, I may not read all six of these, but uh, just a few more which give us an idea of this. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, variety of services, but the same Lord. Variety of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all and everyone. So again, you can see the relationship there. They're all referencing the same God. Um, I'll skip a couple of these. Let's go to Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ until eternal life. So we can say after looking at these evidences for personhood, um, cognition and intellect, uh, volition or will, uh, emotion, affection, and then personal relationship, we can say truly, and this is what I got as I was pouring through this, wow, he really is a person. I can say he when I'm referring to the Holy Spirit, just like we do with God the Father, God the Son. Let's move to section number four, names and titles. This is kind of cool. Names and titles. Again, this is one of the chief evidences that we find for the triune nature of God. But you'll see here, I've got three sections. One of the sections, I'll, I'll list the, the references that talk about God the Spirit. So referencing the Spirit in relationship with God's Spirit. Another section is God, I'm sorry, God the, or the Spirit of the Son. So Jesus' Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. And then there are some other references that are specific to the Holy Spirit. And included in that section, there will be um, attributes mentioned, not attributes unique to the Holy Spirit, but attributes referencing the Holy Spirit specifically. So let's start with Holy Spirit and the Father. We'll just rip through these for time. 
Numbers in Romans say his spirit, the Father's spirit. God in Genesis speaks about my spirit. The psalmist writes your spirit, speaking to God, or your Holy Spirit. Luke in Acts 14, uh, 1 calls the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father, again relating to the Father. It's called in Genesis, Matthew, and 1 Corinthians, the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians calls him the Spirit of our God, or the Spirit of the living God in 2 Corinthians. Paul calls him the Spirit of him. Matthew calls him the Spirit of your Father. Judges, the Spirit of the Lord. Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God. These are all references to the Holy Spirit that relate him to the Father, God, the Spirit. How about uh, the Son as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Son? Luke and Acts reference again the Spirit of the Lord. We saw some of that in the Old Testament, but you can tell which person they're referring to. Of course, they're um, all the triune God. Uh, but Paul in 2 Corinthians says the Lord who is the Spirit, again referencing Jesus in the Spirit. Acts is very specific, the Spirit of Jesus. Paul and Peter both call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. In Philippians, we read the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Or in Galatians, the Spirit of his Son. Now I'm going to go through a list of references that are unique to the Holy Spirit that also give us insights into his eternal triune attributes the spirit your good spirit i won't give all the references here the holy spirit one spirit the seven spirits and i'll come back to that one revelation mentions the seven spirits four times so we'll come back to that the spirit of faith the spirit of glory the spirit of grace the spirit of holiness the spirit of life the promised holy spirit again these are all unique References to the Holy Spirit, some of them give his attributes. The spirit of truth, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the helper, and the eternal spirit. And I'll talk about that one as well. Well, let's go back to this, the seven spirits, because that one caught my attention. I don't know about you, but have any of you ever pondered what it's meant by the seven spirits in Revelation? Some people say it refers to seven angels or that God has seven different spirits, or it could be referring to the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to figure this out for myself. I kind of like to know these little things. It's not readily clear, so I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but if we go back, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, because I want you to see this as I read this. Had a great slide on this one, but um, Isaiah 11, verse 2. I think we might find some insights into the meaning of this term, the seven spirits of God that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Isaiah 11.2 says this. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So that very first, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, it seems like the other references are unpacking that same spirit. So you see there seven references, spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel and power, spirit of power, spirit of knowledge, spirit of the fear of the Lord. So here's what's interesting. When we talk about these seven spirits, the Bible, and in particular the book of Revelation, when you, they refer to the term seven to refer to perfection and completion. 
So if that's the meaning of the seven spirits that we find here in Isaiah 11:2, or I'm sorry, in Revelation, um, then it's not referring to seven different spirits of God, but rather to the perfect, complete Holy Spirit. That's the interpretation I like to um, use when talking about the seven spirits. I hope that's helpful. I also said I'd like to touch on the final reference my, uh, when I was going through the attributes of the Holy Spirit, uh, and it was the eternal spirit found in Hebrews 9, 14. Because this, this was impactful to me. You know, again, like I said, often we think of the Holy Spirit as kind of a New Testament manifestation of the triune God. But like we mentioned, Genesis 1, 2, he was there in the creation. And Grudem said this. I think this is really interesting. If God now exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I thought that was worth mentioning. The Holy Spirit is the eternal God. He was there as co-creator in the beginning. He always was, he always is, so that we're complete in our understanding of the triune God. All right, before we move on to our fifth and final section, um, and going on to word pictures of the Holy Spirit, I want to touch on something I didn't mention, and that was the term the Holy Ghost. You notice that we haven't talked about the Holy Ghost. Why is that? Well, it's, it's only found in the New King James, I'm sorry, not the New King James, the King James Version, the Holy Ghost, and it's found 90 times in the New King James. Interestingly, it's also mentioned seven times, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Why they chose to use, it's the same word, ruach or, or um, pneuma, translated to spirit, but 90 times the translators in the King James said Holy Ghost. Seven times they said Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit. So it's important to understand that um, in 1611, when they were translating it, they weren't meaning to talk about the spirit of a deceased person. At the time, in 1611, it just meant the immaterial, um, an immaterial being, okay? An immaterial being. So in our modern understanding of the word ghost, that's not what they intended. The bottom line is, if you're reading the King James Version, which I love the King James, uh, when you see Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, they're referring to the same thing, okay? So that's all you need to know about that. Let's finish up with number five, word pictures of the Holy Spirit. And I almost didn't include this. Um, I'm very much a biblical literalist for those of you that know me, but we have to understand the genre and the intent of the author. There are metaphors in the Bible, and these word pictures are examples of that. We have eight word pictures used to communicate and help us understand the Holy Spirit in, in terms that we can uh, understand and put into categories. Interestingly, only two of them appear in the Old Testament. Water and wind are used to talk about the Holy Spirit in a word picture. All eight of them are found in the New Testament. I'll talk about these. Um, in the Gospels, we see the New Testament described as clothing or as a dove or as water or wind, like we find in the Old Testament. In Acts, Luke talks about the, Old Test or the uh, Holy Spirit as fire or oil or water or wind. Paul liked to refer in his epistles to the Holy Spirit as oil or as a pledge or a seal. And then Peter talked about the Holy Spirit as wind. And I'll go through some of these. You'll see examples of it, hear examples. In John, in his epistles, he referred to the Holy Spirit as oil. Let's start with clothing, and I'll read to you from Luke 24, 49. 
to show you one example of this. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So on the day of Pentecost, all of the disciples were powerfully enabled by the Holy Spirit, we all know this, to accomplish Christ's purposes. And MacArthur and Mayhew point out here that in this verse, clothed with power on high, God is doing the clothing. He is giving his Holy Spirit to the people, which is different from what we read in Colossians 3, where believers are exhorted to put on the Holy Spirit. Not here. God is clothing. So clothing can be used to symbolize the Holy Spirit being put on by God doing the clothing. So clothing is basically a word picture emblemizing empowerment or enablement. So when the Holy Spirit came upon the, um, the disciples, they were able to do things they weren't able to do before. They were empowered or enabled. They were clothed. What about dove? You remember this famous verse in Matthew 3.16? Everybody's heard this one. It mentions the dove. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So the, the spirit is pictured as a dove, which represents righteousness. I never knew that. There are a couple of references in the New Testament in the book of Romans 16, 19, Philippians 2, 15, where believers are described using the same term for dove, and it represents innocence. Likewise, the Holy Spirit, when described as a dove, represents righteousness and innocence. And then we have the word fire. This is an interesting word picture. Boy, I went down a rabbit hole. J.D. a few years ago told me about Esword. Any of you ever heard of Esword? Little E, big S, W-O-R-D. It's an app you can put on your phone or your, your, your pad. Um, there were only four or five references to the presence of God in fire. But I thought, I want to know how we're talking about the presence of God or distinguishing between what's referring to the Holy Spirit. So I dug into this word fire. When you type in fire in Esword, it brings up all the references. And man, you should do that sometime. I won't go into it. This is a rabbit trail, but fascinating subject when you look at the word fire. But I found 61 references in scripture uh, pertaining to the presence of God. Here's one that is um, that most appropriately emblemizes the visible presence of the Holy Spirit. This is from Acts chapter 2, verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I think it's neat that Paul, later as he wrote his first epistle to the Thessalonians, I think it was decades later, he must have had this fire image that Luke talked about on the day of Pentecost in mind because he, he exhorted the believers not to quench the Spirit in sin. So I thought that was interesting. Let's move on to the next word picture, oil. It had a neat picture of an old vase with oil being poured out of it. Um, anointing with oil in both the Old and the New Testament symbolizes appointment to an important position. For example, the Old Testament priests were anointed with oil into the priesthood. Um, David was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. Um, New Testament disciples were anointed to be apostles, and I'll read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. See how they were anointed 
they say, this is written, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us. That's another word picture we'll talk about and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There's another one. We see the seal. We see anointing with oil and a guarantee. Going back to anointing, the words Mashiach or Messiah in Hebrew and Christos or Christ in, um, in Greek, they both mean anointed one. Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit, most likely at the time of his baptism. Here, the verse we just read from uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, we also see another word picture. We talked about sealing, so let's go to the word seal. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this. We're going to use the word seal. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed in the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And for those of you that can picture the old seals that they used, you remember when they would roll up an important document, and they wanted it to be sealed so not everybody could open it, they would take a candle, light it, and let wax melt down on the document. And while it was still um, uh, pliable, the king would take his signet on his ring and put his seal on it, signifying that this document had authority, and it was only to be opened by authorized people. So this is the picture of the seal used here in Scripture. John 6, 27 says, The Father has set his seal on the Son. Ephesians 4, verse 30 also says, The Lord has set his seal on us, the believers. And this is the Holy Spirit as a seal. That's the seal that is being talked about in Scripture. We also um, saw the word guarantee or pledge. This is another word picture in Ephesians 1, 14. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.22 said God set his seal on the apostles like I mentioned. 2 Corinthians 5.5 says God has given us the spirit as a guarantee. And you think about a guarantee that's notarized by a, a notary saying I commit to this. So the Holy Spirit said to be given to every believer as a guarantee of our full salvation. It'll be completed at the resurrection. So the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit is his pledge to us that what he began in us when we first believed in Christ will eventually result in eternal life. That is his pledge, his seal, his commitment. More word pictures. Uh, two more word pictures, and then we'll finish up here. Water. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Acts 2, 33. The Holy Spirit is pictured as life-enabling water Again, like fire, meaning empowerment. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, I won't read it. Um, Paul pictures the Holy Spirit being poured out for the washing of regeneration. John 7, 38 and 39, Christ speaks about the Holy Spirit being rivers of living water. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Holy Spirit is pictured as life-giving water as Christ baptizes believers with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, which is when they're ushered into the church and they are permanently and irreversibly saved. Finally, the last word picture, wind. Like I already mentioned, when we look at the, the, uh, the Old Testament word ruach, the New Testament word pneuma can be translated as spirit, breath, or wind. 
And it's determined by the context, of course. In John 3, 8, Jesus likened the phenomenon of wind, the phenomenon of wind to the work of God's spirit and salvation in that it's invisible, unexpected, and unpredictable, but it always powerfully accomplishes its end. And Luke pictured the sound of the coming Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know, uh, I think Acts chapter 2, 2, he describes the sound of the wind. The next verse, he talks about it looking like fire. But um, he talks about it being heard, and it created a powerful effect that culminated in Peter's very powerful preaching on that day um, that empowered the beginning of the church. Peter also described the writing of Scripture using wind as emblematic of the Holy Spirit in inspiration. And I thought it was neat, MacArthur and Mayhew mentioned, if you think about a ship at sea, a big sailboat, when the wind dies, we say that ship is dead in the water. And if you think about the apostles and the prophets who were carried along, as Scripture says, in 2 Peter 1.21, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit were not pushing them, they would be dead in the water. They would not be able to write, write Scripture. So I thought that was pretty neat. So unfortunately, we're out of time. We're at 10.15. This is where I have to stop. Um, I hope you learned something about the Holy Spirit. We did see that the Holy Spirit is described in word pictures. We learned he's referred to by a variety of names, many of which refer to his relationship with God the Father, God the Son. Um, we learned that he is a person. He has cognition, intellect, volition, and will, emotion, and affection. And he shares the same attributes as God the Father and God the Son. I hope this has been helpful. We hope you learned something. I certainly did. So it's been a blessing to me. So we'll stop there, and I'll invite you to come back uh, next week to hear Kerry Wilson teach on uh, the ministry of the Spirit. And then again in two weeks we'll have Roger Johansson come back and talk about uh, his ministry efforts in Brazil. So you're dismissed for now. We'll see you in 15 minutes for worship. <laughs>